Who's more going to be more successful at closing the deal? The person that sees the other party as an object or obstacle, or the person who sees the other party as people and actually cares about their concerns. And that was just a phenomenal change in my life in terms of how I, you know, ran my team. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor, Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. This one is something a little different, and I think you're going to like it. I loved it. And I'm talking to an eye surgeon on this one. He's an eye surgeon for the Army. Now, imagine performing surgery during war or in a war zone. Well, that's exactly what Barton Blackerby was doing. And now I get to interview him. I ask him some amazing questions. You get to listen in because his, his answers really put things in perspective and really show what's important when it comes to actually functioning under high pressure. Listen into this one. You're going to love it. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success podcast. And today I've got a special guest with me. We've got a doctor in the house. Welcome, Dr. Barton Blackerby. Thanks, Tristan. Uh, happy to be here. Dude, well, look, you're not just an ordinary doctor, right? Tell me, tell, what kind of doctor are you? So I'm a vitreoretinal surgeon. So of all of my medical training, I have now focused solely just working on the back of your eye on the retina that allows you to see. Dude, that's why I let you say that because I would have totally messed that up. <laughs> that's a good I, how did I even spell that? <laughs> that's question one. Yeah. Oh, that's crazy, man. How did you, how did you get into that? First of all, I, um, you know, uh, my route through becoming a doctor uh, probably wasn't the most typical route. You know, when I was in undergrad, I had some friends that were pre-med. I thought it sounded cool, but, you know, they told me that I probably wasn't smart enough to do it. And I used that as motivation to go into medical school. I had a similar encounter where I wanted to do ophthalmology and uh, still, you know, had some friends who were like, yeah, you're probably not smart enough to do that. And that drove me into that field. And once I was an ophthalmologist, I decided to, I was like, well, what's the hardest thing I could do now, the most challenging? And that's retina surgery. And it pushed me into that. Nice, man. Nice. And I know that that you served as a, a doctor specifically for the military, right? And I want to get into a little bit there because going into that field while you're a doctor is, is a whole nother level. And, and I want people to see that, that there's a lot more to it than one would think, because you get, I think, I think there is where you get life experience on the go, trying to figure things out as they're falling apart, even more so than let's say an emergency room, right? Exactly. And so how did you get involved with the military? How did that go about? So when I uh, got into medical school, uh, you know, obviously there's a big debt that's about to loom over your head. My whole family has been in the military and my dad approached me and said, Hey, I think it's probably about time that you join. So I approached the army and, uh, did a direct commission, uh, into the army that way, because I was going to have a skill that the army needed. 
Ah, got it. All right. So they said, you're qualified. We'll bring you in. And what does that involve? Did they did they keep you in the U.S.? Did they put you out in another country to help out to help out the army, the Marines? What did that look like, man? And can you talk about it? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, the army definitely gives you opportunities to broaden what you're comfortable with. And they're going to give you new responsibilities and multiple hats to wear. Uh, as a medical student, you know, you go to your basic training, but otherwise they leave you alone to focus on your medical studies. And then mm -hmm. in residency, I went to Madigan Army Medical Center at Joint Base Lewis-McChord in Washington. And at mm -hmm. that time, you're learning about how to be an ophthalmologist, but you're also learning how to be an army officer because at the same time, they're trying to train you to be a leader. Uh, afterwards, uh, they sent me straight to Fort Leonardwood, Missouri, to uh, General Leonardwood Army Community Hospital. And uh, I was the only ophthalmologist there. So that was a big growing experience because at that point, you're saying, okay, you know, I, I'm trained, I, I, I know what to do, but there's no one around mm -hmm. to help anymore. And uh, it was a great experience. Um, they, I approached them and said, hey, I want to do a little bit more training for fellowship which they mm -hmm. gladly sent me to, to the Retin Institute in St. Louis. And as soon as I got back to uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord, a few months later, they deployed me to Iraq to be the ophthalmologist for the Iraqi theater. Um, and that was a whole new experience in and of itself. How did they train you to go from go, becoming a doctor, right? Going through that whole process, which is intense too. And... And then being sent to war. I mean, you're going right in the middle of, of possibly dying. How do you, how do they train you and how do you cope with that? Knowing that you, you're the one who chose this, Barton. You're the one who right. chose this, man. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my wife did like to remind me of that. There was an individual that uh, <laughs> uh, one individual couldn't go. And, uh, you know, I had told my leadership, I'd said, hey, if there's ever an opportunity for me to deploy, I want to go. Um, you know, I want to make sure that I have that aspect of my military career, uh, you know, because it's a unique aspect that I don't think everybody gets to enjoy. And I say enjoy because it's tough. Uh, it's certainly uh, not always fun while you're there. But I look back on that uh, with a lot of good memories, um, as I'm sure most people do in terms of, you know, their service. Uh, but, you know, during your, your training, in addition to your medical training, you're always doing army warrior tasks. Uh, so you're learning how to communicate and work with uh, other military officers who aren't medical, who are really the, you know, the we call them line officers. So they're your infantry and artillery, you know, um, just to name two of the many services, you know, that are there, um, but really learning how to integrate yourself with them and be part of that unit. Uh, in addition to that, you know, there's good breaks from the clinic. You go off and you qualify with your M9 or M4. Mm -hmm. There's convoys. There's all sorts of things to just mentally give you these baby steps. So by the time you deploy, it's somewhat vaguely familiar. So it's not so foreign to you. Got it. Got it. And what type of training are you doing when it comes to training, not just physically, like how to use a gun, how to do all, all that, 
but mentally preparing you for this because that's not something that we always talk about, right? We, when we, when we, cause I'm a civilian, right? Non-military. I look at the military and I'm like, awesome. They're getting a lot of training when it comes to understanding how to use weapons, right? How to have strategy, how to do all that. But what, what happens when it comes to training soldiers and training you mentally to be prepared for the pressures that you face there? That definitely is a unique aspect. Uh, during my training, uh, they teach us, uh, they teach our special forces, uh, doctors, and pretty much any unit that's interested, what we call these mental skills. Uh, and it's part about building resiliency because there are going to be times in your career um, that you know are very exciting and stressful and, and times that aren't. Uh, same thing with deployment. There are times that are very exciting, whether you're very busy or you potentially are under attack. And then there's times where you're not so busy when you're in between missions and you're just sort of regrouping. Uh, and these skills really teach you how to be mentally flexible and adaptable to these situations. Uh, one of the things I always talk about with resiliency is the ability to bounce back. So there are times when you may get knocked backwards, but instead of falling down and trying to pick up at that spot, being able to bounce back to that same spot you were with the energy to move forward. Okay, that makes a lot of sense, man. What specific training were you part of that you can share with us? Because we're right now in this, the audience that we have right now, right? Entrepreneurs, whether they're they're solopreneurs or entrepreneurs running a big business, small business, individuals, what can they learn from the training that you had that you could share with us? Yeah, uh, some of the training that I really took to heart um, is the ability, and these are just a few of them, was the ability to not catastrophize. Uh, for example, you know things are going. You're going to have curveballs. You know. Uh, their, your surgery may not go perfect, um, or your business may, you know, like with 2021 and supply chain issues, there's all these things that will come up that's going to affect you that are outside of your control. Uh, when you're under attack during a deployment or any sorts of things, uh, there's the ability for your mind to go to the worst case scenario and just focus on that. And that's what they call catastrophizing. And what they teach you to think about is, well, yes, you do need to acknowledge what is the worst case scenario and are there things that can mitigate that, but then also to focus on what is the most common scenario that's about to happen. And then that's probably the thing that I need to focus on because that's most common and it more than likely isn't the worst case scenario. Um, for example, if I you know, had a surgery that didn't go well, you know, the most common uh, example or situation would be that, you know, the patient uh, is probably going to do fine. Most things are correctable as long as I keep my head in the game and I do the right steps and do the right things and do the correct, you know, uh, post-operative care. Uh, I still need to be aware of those other things. But if I focus on those other things, it can almost paralyze me in the operating room because I think, oh, my gosh, I've you know, I may have completely blinded this patient and that's not the right mindset to be in. <laughs> Definitely not, man. How do you keep things in perspective so you stay focused on what's most important? Um, another thing that I picked up from these mental skills is that ability to compartmentalize things. And what I do when I go to the operating room is 
So I start in the office where I'm in clinic. There's a hundred different things I have to do. My email's there. There's so many different hats that I have to wear. But as soon as I walk out of the clinic, when that door shuts, mentally, I'm compartmentalizing everything that's not related to what I'm about to do behind that door. Now I don't have to think about that. Now I can focus on what's at hand. Then when I get to the operating room inside that room, everything within the hospital has now been compartmentalized out of that. So all I need to focus on now is my team, my patient, and what I need to do. And then once I'm in the eye, I'm in my smallest compartment. So now at this point, I'm not thinking about what my team's doing, but I'm thinking about what I have to do so I can devote 100% of my mental energy exactly to what I'm doing. All right. Is that part of the Arbinger Institute training that you had, or is that completely separate? Arbinger Institute is separate, but it's certainly a critical piece in terms of developing a strong team. Uh, So the Arbinger Institute is an organization that the Army has uh, really bought into their leadership philosophy. Um, They've got two books. uh, Both of them changed my life, uh, not only in terms of me being a surgeon, but also a parent and a husband and a leader. The first one is The Anatomy of Peace. And that really focuses on a uh, an individual named Lou. He's a businessman uh, whose company and family is falling apart. And so he goes on this, well, his son is sent on a retreat that he also has to attend. And during that time, he starts to view people as people rather than objects. And, you know, one of the great examples in the book of that book is, you know, they tell him, they say, well, who, if you're trying to negotiate with another company, Who's more going to be more successful at closing the deal? The person that sees the other party as an object or obstacle or the person who sees the other party as people and actually cares about their concerns. And that was just a phenomenal change in my life in terms of how I you know, ran my team. The second one is the, the leadership and self-deception. And that works more towards people who are in leadership roles, managers, you know, of how to view your subordinates, coworkers, and superiors as still as people and how to utilize that rather than putting up your own barriers for, you know, what you're trying to do. Got it. What was the name of the second book? I got the first one, The Anatomy uh, of Peace. The second one's Leadership and Self-Deception. Leadership and... Now I have reading material, man. Thank you. Sure. (laughs) Deception. I just wrote that down. Hopefully, as people are listening in, they're taking that as well. So in this Arbinger Institute, are those those books that they recommended or you guys dive into them and kind of dissect them and go deeper? They they recommend the books. My uh, residency instructor actually recommended them to me as a resident because at the time I was really competitive. Uh, and I wasn't quite building the teamwork with my co-residents as what he thought, but they also have Arbinger workshops where they're, they'll send army officers to really do these deep dives into this and how that you can apply that, you know, to your unit, um, or whatever organization you're in. Mm, I like that, man. All right. So now tell me how bringing this, what you learned here into a situation where things are going crazy out in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that served you out there. And I know you can't give me like specific examples because it's classified, but tell me what you can in a way that you can. 
So, you know, when, uh, when things happen over there, uh, they sometimes will happen quite quickly. Uh, now, a lot of the times mm-hmm. we always had our pagers on us and we were at our roll three facility. So we have uh, a lot of doctors there and the pagers would go off and we'd be brief that trauma's incoming and mm-hmm. that would allow you to start forming these game plans. Um, one of the things that you did during your time off that I tried to do was I always tried to build these personal relationships with people so that when we were in a stressful situation and they may not be acting the exact way that I would expect them to act, or we're starting to kind of rub with each other, you've built that foundational relationship. And that's a key component of the Arbinger Institute. You have to have this, this, uh, this solid foundation of, you know, uh, relationship and seeing the other people as a person so that when you are in these situations, even if things aren't working 100% smooth, you're still working as that efficient team. And then when trauma does arrive, that's when this compartmentalization, you know, comes into play. So everything else that's going on, whether, you know, your own base is under attack or there's other things that you're trying to think about at that moment, the only thing that I'm thinking about is that patient in front of me and doing the very best that I can because they put themselves in harm's way, you know, for their fellow soldiers, you know, for the country, for us. And now it's my turn to do the same for them. And that's all I'm thinking about at that moment. So, you know, when you practice these things, when you're in that moment, it almost becomes second nature to be like, this is what I need to do. And this is the mindset I need to be in. All right. That's good to be there because obviously we all need to focus in order to achieve what we want to achieve and have best results. How is it that you practice this? Like, on on a daily basis so you get to that state Barton because not everybody can well not everybody feels that wow that's that's definitely achievable but some people are like well that's not that's just not going to happen how do you practice it I think I start with you know I started with this on smaller levels you know so I every time I go to the OR I practice that compartmentalization uh the same thing that if someone ever had to you know talk with uh, a partner or a uh, or have a meeting or have a presentation or anything where they have to negotiate or do more high stress level things, you know, you can work on these small compartmentalizations where like, okay, I don't need to think about this right now. This is where my thought process needs to be. And then, you know, the building relationships is for a lot of people, it seems stressful, but if you do it on a really small level, um, it builds that over time. So when you're in these stressful situations, it's easy. So if you've been talking to your coworkers genuinely, you know, if you're uh, not, you know, putting a lot of fluff in emails of trying to say, hey, how's the weekend going? But really, they know you're trying to ask about something else. If you take these subtle steps to show people, hey, I care about you as a person, mm-hmm. then all of that homework's already done. So when when you've got that big thing you got to do, everyone's there for you and and you kind of know what to do. Let's go deeper on that because that's now you're building on the fundamental relationships, right? Which is what you're talking about. You said that was like the, the integral thing that the Arbinger Institute really taught, right? Building on those relationships. So when you need them, they're there. Right. Uh, Let's go into that because we all have as entrepreneurs teams and businesses that we run and we have our staff, we have those people that we want to connect with at that level. What are we looking to do specifically 
where we can connect with people. Because you mentioned like reaching out to them by email, but not being very generic, going deeper. What does that look like, like on a daily basis? You know, one of the things they talk in this book is the cycle of conflict. And uh, I'll give you a quick example of what they're talking about, because I think people fall into these cycles. And then if you can't get out of them, you stay in the cycle. So then when you truly are trying to be genuine, everyone's still kind of spinning around the same wheel. So one of the things their example was, uh, there was this guy that, you know, he got home late from work. He was supposed to mow the lawn. He was supposed to go out and play tennis. And he's running late and his wife says, hey, I need you to mow the lawn. And he's like, well, I have tennis. I can't do that right now. And you know, she sort of like digs into him saying, you said you were going to do it. So he goes out real quick and he mows the lawn. And he comes back and she said, well, you didn't do the edging. And he's basically arguing with her saying, you know, I don't need to do this edging. I'm going to be late. And of course she's saying, well, you know, I'll just do it myself. And he said, no, I'm going to do it when I get back. So he goes, he has a great tennis match. He comes back to tell her about it. And all she's thinking about is how he didn't do what he she asked him to do. He didn't edge. So he goes out that night and he edges and he doesn't do a great job at it, but it's done. And he goes in and he says, I'm done. I've done all the edging, but it still didn't make her happy. And that happens so much in our life where, you know, even though he did the task that she asked him to do, he didn't do it seeing her as a person. He saw her as sort of a nagging wife that was, you know, uh, unappreciative of his, his time. And she's seen him as a very selfish, self-centered, you know, immature person. So even though the task got completed, everyone still sees each other as an object. Instead of seeing her as his wife, he sees her as a nagging, unappreciative woman. And she again sees him as, you know, an immature, self-centered man. And now, even though they did what they were supposed to do, they're in a cycle where they're at war with each other. And if they can't get out of that, and I think that happens a lot in organizations and in businesses, then you're just self-sabotaging because you're not building these personal relationships. And, you know, everyone's yeah. just got these small little wars going on. All right. So how do you shift that mindset? What is one place that you want to start and say, look, this is this is how I'm going to approach this so that and let's just break it down. Husband, wife, wife, husband, spouse, boyfriend, whatever on that level. How is it that you, you stop looking at the other person as the problem and more as got it? I understand this is an individual. This is someone that I love. Right. Let's work on this. Does that take like T.D. Jakes or Jocko would say uh, extreme ownership, humility? Where do we start? It does take some humility. There's, and then there's a lot of insight. Um, so there's two things that that the this Arbiter Institute and in reality, the Army in general kind of teaches you is one having developing insight, finding out well how did I contribute to the problem that I'm dealing with. Now you may not have contributed a hundred percent to it, and none of this is you know saying that there aren't people that you're going to encounter in life that are just difficult to work with. But by looking to see, well, how am I responsible for this? It gives you that pause to start to read out the situation. And the other mm -hmm. thing they tell you to look at is they tell you to find a memory in which someone treated you in a way that you felt you probably shouldn't have been treated in a good way. And, you know, for example, um, my, uh, you know, my dad, when I was growing up, 
uh, I, you know, I had a really short temper and I fought a lot and I'd always get, you know, in these in-school suspensions and things. And, uh, you know, people would yell at me and no one would listen to me. But my father, when he'd come home, he would sit down, even though I knew he was mad, he'd say, you know, what's going on? You know, I love you. You're a great son. What's going on here? And that was somebody who was seeing me as a person when the teachers and everyone else were seeing me as an object, like an angry kid. So if you find that memory within you where you're saying, when did somebody see me as a person that can put your heart back at what they call a heart of peace. So now you're not warring with that other person anymore. You have a clear mindset to try to find a resolution. Okay. I see that. And that that's interesting because now you're going, and this is for everybody listening in here. Now, now you're going for what's the, what's the real reason that, these emotions are there in the first place. So let's get, let's go a little deeper. And I think when you start asking yourself those questions, you start then addressing it differently than, than what most people really treat it as. And that's why, I mean, you can see this on social media, Barton, right? People, people read things on the surface and they're so reactive based on those things. Exactly. So, Going, going a little deeper and understanding the underlying factors by taking the time to step outside of what you typically feel like your dad could have been like super angry and be like, what the hell is this, man? Right. Why are you always like this? Instead, he pulled you aside and said, what, what's going on? Right. Exactly. And, And I think it takes, it takes two in this sense, because it's one on one here, but it takes two from the, from your side. Barton, going back to you, when you were when you were having challenges and you were being somewhat disruptive, what did you feel when he pulled you aside and he said, "Hey, what's what's really going on here?" I, you know, I knew that I had, you know, an ally in that situation. I knew that he loved me, and granted, he's my dad, but it's the same thing in any relationship. You know that this other person truly cares about what you're going through. Mm-hmm. And that is the foundation of that relationship, because now you can really open up to talk about, well, what are my problems here far beneath what you're actually seeing? Um, and I try to do the same thing, you know, uh, you know, when I'm in the operating room and anesthesia is saying, well, we can't do that or you can't do this, you can't do that. And as surgeons, sometimes we have an ego and I'm saying, well, I'm the surgeon. I want to do this. But when mm-hmm. I pull them aside I say, hey, you know, why is there a roadblock here? What's what's the issue? I find that the other person is a lot more diffused. Uh, they're not puffing their chest up as much. They're not raising their voice because they kind of pull them one-on-one. I'm saying, how can we get through this? Because, and then they know that you're truly caring about their concerns. And I've always found a way through that way. I like that, man. I think you're going back to, you're almost interrupting the pattern that we're so used to seeing. Right. Right. It's like you're taking you're taking the situation outside of what it's normally at. And you're saying, "Okay, got it. This needs a little bit more attention. Let me go deeper. I love that, man. I think if we were to approach the people, the people that we really want to connect with, that we start building organizations with in this way, we could build more successful organizations because they feel like we actually care. 
you can. And, you know, there, it is so powerful just to, you know, I, as one of the things I do in the hospital, I do a lot of education and I will make it a point where I will go to somebody's office and, you know, it's not a, you know, uh, it's certainly not like a power play because that's where I'd be trying to pull them to my office. But I take the time to go over to their office and then I just sit down and I'm like, hey, one-on-one, you know, the committee's not here. You know, I'm not trying to show face for anybody else. It's just you and me. Let's talk. And I find, you know, as you said, if people did that more often where they just were like, I'm going to go over to this office and just chat, I think walls would come down. You're right, man. I think because they often see things, they often see you as possibly somebody, not you specifically, but in general, you, right? Somebody that has maybe some ego involved, maybe doesn't have their best interests at heart, right? Because they're, they are seeing the world through their eyes. So, and I mean, what other way are we going to see the world, right? But right. we see it, we see it in the way that we think reality is. And so you taking it taking it to the side and saying, Hey, how can we get through this? That's, I think that's pretty powerful, man. And how have you been able to perfect this when you're, or getting better at it? How have you been able to get better at this through the years when you're maybe not dealing on a one-on-one basis, but with a lot more people, because it's not, it's not always where you can take somebody aside one-on-one, right? Right. So how have you been able to deal with this more on scale or how have people dealt with you when you've been part of a team and they've been trying to deal with it on scale? Yeah, I think that uh, certainly came to play when I was deployed. So the uh, the hospital, the field hospital, I don't uh, understand the, you know, underlying uh, things for it, but typically the head and neck team, which is what I was a part of, is ENT, ophthalmology, a neurosurgeon, or anesthesia, and a nurse. They are not organic or part of the field hospital. So there's a field hospital of maybe 80 people, and then you're five strangers that showed up. And at that time, you know, you're really out of your element because you're the new guy on the block. And certainly, you know, people may see this a little bit awkward if you're pulling people side by side, you know, when you're not organic to the unit. Uh, And in those situations, what I try to do is I try to, you know, anything that I can do for the unit. Uh, So I taught uh, Arbinger lessons when I was over there because the commander asked me to do it. Um, I participated in all these various hats because the commander needed someone to do it. So when I showed up as a new person, I showed the team that I care about them as people by stepping up and helping them with tasks that otherwise I was not deployed to actually do. Okay, that that makes a lot of sense on that sense, man. I like it. I like your approach to this. So now let's fast forward. You're you're in the military, you're back to where you are now. What are some things you can you can say you brought back with you that you've learned there that you're going to apply to the way you live life and the way you run your business? I, you know, a few things that I brought back. Um, one is, you know, and I think we hear this uh, uh, from other people, you know, that have been overseas is we are so blessed uh, in this country that, when I came back, a lot of the things that I'd get fired up about or things that I may have taken for granted, 
and seeing, you know, uh, a war-torn country, you know, having people try to do me harm. Um, and, and then coming back to the security that I feel in America, that really helped me appreciate just how great of a place that we live. Uh, it really helped with my patriotism. Mm-hmm. The, the other things that I did for, you know, my job and my residency was um, the similar things like I did over there. I picked up some more hats in the hospital, uh, got mm-hmm. more involved in education, and then I taught the residents the same things that I was dealing with there. I had a, um, you know, I had one resident, fantastic, but has some anxiety. And that's totally expected when you're starting to do surgery and you're, especially when you're learning on the eye. And one of the things that we worked on while I was deployed, uh, the head neck team and I did, was that we did these breathing exercises. Um, you may have heard of them. Vim Hof is a, uh, uh, basically this. Yeah. Iceman guy, but we did these, these breathing exercises that with practice, it reduced our anxiety to the point where if I just took one big breath, I could recenter myself because when you do have traumas coming in or you are under attack, those are very stressful situations that you need to get your head on straight uh, because there's not really room for error. And mm-hmm. I've brought that back to our residents here to say, Hey, let's work on these, especially on your own time. So when we do have an issue in the operating room where you're operating, I'm just going to tell you to breathe and you know to take that one breath and you'll be back to that right place. Mm. Dude, just breathing, huh? I don't think we breathe enough through the day, at least the right way. <laughs> right. Yeah, certainly not. No, but it, it's so simple, but it has such a huge impact to just get those jitters and that anxiety out of the way. That's interesting, man. I think we we definitely should take just the time to breathe in deeper throughout the day. It's just it kind of does the exact same thing that you were talking about earlier when you have a one-on-one situation or you've taken them off to the side and now they're seeing this completely different because they feel like you care. They, they got a little bit of a break. It's like you're doing the same thing with your body. It's like, okay, hey, look, we're getting a lot. We're getting bombarded, notifications left and right. Let's take a deep breath. Let's exactly. take a deep breath. Uh, let's make some time. Dude, I really like that. So when it comes to breathing techniques, anything you can share with us, because I know for those listening in, we've probably seen some movies or we've read some books or we've heard of these amazing techniques the Marines do when they're under fire, just breathing. Anything you can share with us when it comes to breathing techniques? Sure. Um, so the Wim Hof method, and I'm certainly probably not an expert on it, but what I've done is, uh, is very useful for me is you basically hyperventilate to where you hyperventilate big, deep breaths for about 25 to 30. Everything will get really tingly. Your body's going to start to get stressed. You're going to feel uncomfortable. And then you breathe all that air out and you hold your breath with no air in the lungs, which is going to stress the body because the body's saying, Hey, wait a minute. We're not breathing. I don't have any air in the lungs. We need to breathe. But what you've done is you've super saturated your body with oxygen and you don't have to breathe right away. And it gives you these opportunities to mentally tell your body and your mind, it's okay. Let's calm down. Let's get these feelings under control. And you hold it as long as you can until you have to breathe and you repeat the cycle. And once you've done that, and you get that that sort of that mental clarity where you can say everything's fine and you let that breath out and in at the end, 
That is all you have to do when you're in that stressful situation. Dude, we could totally use that. That that we can implement today. I think we all need alarms set on our phones to remind us to breathe. Oh, definitely. Right? And you know, you will be surprised at how tense you are. And then when you do that one cycle once and all the stress is gone, you're going to realize, wow, I didn't know how stressed I was at this moment, but but now I do. All right, man. What do you do to just relax your mind and and just chill uh, when you're having like such a tough day? Is there anything that you can share with us that we can maybe put into our lives? A few of the hobbies that kind of take where I basically disconnect. Um, you know, I do a lot of uh, cycling and weightlifting. So if my heart's been racing all day and I've got this pent up energy then that's when I'm hitting the bike and I'm just burning that energy out and it's mindless. And if I feel like I'm really tense and agitated, those are usually the days I'll hit those weights where I'm physically pushing that out of my body to exhaustion. And then on days when, you know, it's just kind of a busy day, I'll disconnect and, you know, sit on the couch with my girls and watch My Little Pony and uh, it's completely <laughs> mindless, but I'm such a brony. I know every single character there, but it's, you know, it's just a time to disconnect and just sit and be surrounded by happiness and, you know, just watch a cartoon. I think uh, I call that, um, what was I telling my daughter over the weekend? I call that core priorities. I think when you, when you have these priorities in your life that you know you need to do on a, on a daily or weekly basis, one of those being family, taking care of yourself, all of a sudden you feel more accomplished because you subliminally know that you focused on something that was making a difference in your life. So right. that, that's interesting, man. I, I really dig that. And it, they're so simple. There, there's things that we already know, Barton, like, hey, you should go work out, right? You should, you should spend some time with your family and yourself. <laughs> It's nuts. Man. It's, I am so happy when I leave the gym too. You, you're like, wow, I, why was I neglecting this? I feel great now. Mm. Yeah, man. I think we all need to hear that because we often, we often get stuck doing the things we think are important, but we don't, uh, we don't look internally. We need to take some time off for ourselves and go on a one-on-one -on -one with I, Barton. I need to talk to myself. I'm like, Tristan, are you okay? Take a deep breath. Right. <laughs> I care about you. I care about what we're going through. Dude, I love that. I love this conversation, man. Thank you for taking the time to, to dive a little deeper into this. And what's one way we can connect with you? If we have any other questions as to anything that we've heard here. Are you on Instagram, on Facebook, or just email? Uh, I'm on uh, Facebook as Barton Blackerby MD. Uh, Instagram as the IMD. And uh, always, you can hit me up on my email. It's just bblackerby at gmail.com. Barton, I may reach out to you and and see if you can do like a 20-minute session for, for some of our audiences in other places. Because what we just talked about, I think we can go in a little deeper on some of these, dude. It's pretty good. Definitely. The Arbiter think, Institute, especially if you taught that. So sorry about that. Go ahead. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, there, there's certainly more uh, to learn from the Arbinger Institute. Uh, I do appreciate you giving me the chance to share that. I'd love to share anything else I can with you in the future. 
Thanks, man. Well, thanks for being on. We appreciate you. I'm sure a lot of us took notes. I'm already breathing deeper and taking, <laughs> as soon as you said it, I'm like, oh crap, I think I need to take a deep breath. <laughs> so <laughs> thanks, Martin. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.